Part one sections one hundred three to one twenty two of All Things Are Possible by Lev Shestov, translated by S. S. Kotelyansky, eighteen eighty eight to nineteen fifty five. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Part one section one hundred three the summit of human existence say the philosophers is spiritual serenity equanimitas but in that case the animals should be our ideal for in the matter of imperturbability they leave nothing to be desired look at a grazing sheep or a cow they do not look before and after and sigh for what is not given a good pasture the present suffices them perfectly. 104. A hungry man was given a piece of bread and a kind word. The kindness seemed more to him than the bread. But had he been given only the kind word and no bread, he would perhaps have hated nice phrases. Therefore, caution is always to be recommended in the drawing of conclusions, and in none more than in the conclusion that truth is more urgently required than a consoling lie the connections of isolated phenomena can very rarely be discerned as a rule several causes at once produce one effect owing to our propensity for idealizing we always make prominent that cause which seems to us loftiest one hundred five a strange anomaly we see thousands of human beings perish around us yet we walk warily lest we crush a worm the sense of compassion is strong in us but it is adapted to the conditions of our existence. It can relieve an odd case here and there, and it raises a terrific outcry over a trifling injustice. Yet Schopenhauer wanted to make compassion the metaphysical basis of morality. 106. To discard logic as an instrument, a means or aid for acquiring knowledge, would be extravagant. Why should we? For the sake of consequentialism? that is for logic's very self but logic as an aim in itself or even as the only means to knowledge is a different matter against this one must fight even if he has against him all the authorities of thought beginning with aristotle one hundred seven when the yellowing cornfields sway and are moved and the fresh forest utters sound through the breeze then i see happiness on earth and god in heaven it may be so to the poet but it may be quite different sometimes the cornfield waves the woods make noise in the wind the stream whispers its best tales and still man cannot perceive happiness nor forget the lesson taught in childhood that the blue heavens are only an optical illusion but if the sky and the boundless fields do not convince is it possible that the arguments of kant and the commentations of his dozens of talentless followers can do anything 108. The Greatest Temptation In Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor lurks a dreadful idea. Who can be sure, he says, metaphorically of course, that when the crucified Christ uttered his cry, Lord, why hast thou forsaken me, he did not call to mind the temptation of Satan, who for one word had offered him dominion over the world. And, if Jesus recollected this offer, how can we be sure that he did not repent not having taken it one had better not be told about such temptations one hundred nine 
from the future opinions concerning contemporary europe europe of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries presented a strange picture after luther christianity degenerated into morality and all the threads connecting man with god were cut together with the rationalization of religion all life took on a flat rational character knights were replaced by a standing army recruited on the principle of compulsory military service for all and existing chiefly for the purpose of parades and official needs alchemy which had been trying to find the philosopher's stone was replaced by chemistry which tried to discover the best means for cheap preparation of cheap commodities astrology which had sought in the stars the destinies of men was replaced by astronomy which foretold the eclipses of the sun and the appearing of comets even the dress of the people became strangely colourless not only men but women also wore uniform monochromatic clothes most remarkable of all that epoch did not notice its own significance but was even proud of itself it seemed to the man of that day that never before had the common treasury of spiritual riches been so well replenished we of course may smile at their naivete but if one of their own number had allowed himself to express an opinion disdainful of the bases of the contemporary culture he would have been declared immoral or put away in a madhouse a terrible punishment very common in that coarse period though now it is very difficult even to imagine what such a proceeding implied but in those days to be known as immoral or to find oneself in a madhouse was worse than to die one of the famous poets of the nineteenth century alexander pushkin said god forbid that i should go mad rather let me be a starving beggar in those times people on the whole were compelled to tell lies and play the hypocrite so that not infrequently the brightest minds who saw through the shams of their epoch yet pretended to believe in science and morality only in order to escape the persecution of public opinion one hundred ten writers of tragedies on shakespeare's model to obtain a spark one must strike with all one's might with an iron upon a stone whereupon there is a loud noise which many are inclined to believe more important than the little spark similarly writers having shouted very loudly are deeply assured that they have fulfilled their sacred mission and are amazed that all do not share their raptures that some even stop their ears and run away one hundred eleven metamorphoses sense and folly are not at all native qualities in a man in a crisis a stupid man becomes clever we need not go far for an example what a gaping simpleton dostoevsky looks in his injured and insulted not to mention poor folk but in letters from the underworld and the rest of his books he is the shrewdest and cleverest of writers the same may be said of nietzsche tolstoy or shakespeare in his birth of tragedy nietzsche seems just like the ordinary honest rather simple blue-eyed provincial german student and in zarathustra he reminds one of machiavelli poor shakespeare got himself into a row for his brutus but no man could deny the great mind in hamlet the best instance of all however is tolstoy right up to today, whenever he likes he can be cleverer than the cleverest yet at times he is a schoolboy this is the most interesting and enviable trait in him one hundred twelve 
In Troilus and Cressida, Tersites says, Shall the elephant Ajax carry it thus? He beats me, and I rail at him. O worthy satisfaction! Would it were otherwise, that I could beat him whilst he railed at me. Dostoevsky might have said the same of his opponents. He pursued them with stings, sarcasm, abuse, and they drove him to a white heat by their quiet assurance and composure. The present-day admirers of Dostoevsky quietly believe in the teachings of their master. Does it not mean that de facto they have betrayed him and gone over to the side of his enemies? 113. The opinion has gained ground that Turgenev's ideal women, Natalie, Elena, Mariana, are created in the image and likeness of Pushkin's Tatiana. The critics have been misled by external appearances. To Pushkin, his Tatiana appears as a vestal guarding the sacred flame of high morality, because such a job is not fitting for a male. The pretender in Boris Godunov says to the old monk Piman, who preaches meekness and submission, but you fought under the walls of Kazan, etc. That is a man's work. But in the hours of peace and leisure, the fighter needs his own hearthside. He must feel assured that at home his rights are safely guarded. This is the point of Tatiana's last words. I belong to another and shall remain forever true to him. But in Turgenev, woman appears as the judge and the reward, sometimes even the inspirer of victorious man. There is a great difference. 114. From a German Introduction to Philosophy We shall maintain the opinion that metaphysics, as the crown of the particular sciences, is possible and desirable, and that to it falls the task intermediate between theory and practice, experiment and anticipation, mind and feeling, the task of weighing probabilities, balancing arguments, and reconciling difficulties. Thus, metaphysics is a weighing of probabilities, Ergo, further than probable conclusions, it cannot go. Thus, why do metaphysicians pretend to universal and obligatory, established and eternal judgments? They go beyond themselves. In the domain of metaphysics, there cannot and must not be any established beliefs. The word established loses all its sense in the connection. It is reasonable to speak of eternal hesitation and temporality of thought. 115. From another introduction to philosophy, also German. Compared with the delusion of the materialists, the wretchedest worshipper of idols seems to us a being capable of apprehending to a certain degree the great meaning and essence of things. Perhaps this thought strayed in accidentally among the huge herd of the other thoughts of the professor, so little does it resemble the rest. But even so it loses none of its interest. If the materialists here spoken of, those of the 19th century, Buchner, Vogt, Moleschott, all of them men who stood on the pinnacle of natural science, were capable of proving in the realm of philosophy more uninformed than the nakedest savage, then it follows not only that science has nothing in common with philosophy, but that the two are even hostile. Therefore we ought to go to the savages, not to civilize them, but even to learn philosophy from them. A Papuan or a Tierra del Fuegan delivering a lecture in philosophy to the professors of the Berlin University, Friedrich Paulsen, for example, is a curious sight. 
I say to Friedrich Paulsen, and not to Buchner or Moleschott, because Paulsen is also an educated person, and therefore his philosophic sensibility may have suffered from contact with science, even if not so badly as that of the materialists. He needs the assistance of a red-skinned master. Why have German professors so little daring or enterprise? Why should not Paulsen, on his own initiative, go to Patagonia to perfect himself in philosophy, or at least send his pupils there and preach broadcast the new pilgrimage? And now, lo and behold, he has hatched an original and fertile idea, so he will stick in a corner with it so that even if you wanted, you could not get a good look at it. The idea is important and weighty. Our philosophers would lose nothing by sitting at the feet of the savages. 116. From a History of Ethics. Doubts concerning the existence or the possibility of discovering a moral norm have, of course, I underline it, proved a stimulus to a new speculative establishing of ethics just as the denial of the possibility of knowledge led to the discovery of the condition of knowledge with this proposition the author does not play hide-and-seek as paulsen does with his he places it in a conspicuous position in a conspicuous section of his book and accompanies it with a trumpeting herald of course but only one thing is clear namely that the majority share the opinion of professor jodl to whom the quoted words belong so that the first assumption of ethics has as its foundation the consensus sapientium it is enough one hundred seventeen the normative theory which has taken such hold in germany and russia bears the stamp of that free and easy self-assurance which characterizes the state of contentment and which does not desire even for the sake of theoretical perfection to take into consideration the divided state of soul which usually accompanies discontent windelband in preluden page three thirteen is evidence of this he exposes himself with the naive frankness almost of an irrational creature and is not only unashamed but even proud of his part philosophic research he says is possible only to those who are convinced that the norm of the universal imperative is supreme above individual activities and that such a norm is discoverable not every witness will give evidence so honestly it amounts to this that philosophic research is not a search after truth but a conspiracy amongst people who dethrone truth and exalt instead the all-binding norm the task is truly ethical morality always was and always will be utilitarian and bullying its active principle is he who is not with us is against us one hundred eighteen if besides the reality which is evident to us we were susceptible to another form of reality chaotic lawless then this latter could not be the subject of thought real philosophie der gegenwart this is one of the a priori of critical philosophy one of the unproved first assumptions evidently it is only an expression in other words of windelband's assertion quoted above concerning the ethical basis of the law of causation thus the a priori of contemporary thought convince us more and more that nietzsche's instinct was not at fault 
the root of all our philosophies lies not in our objective observations but in the demands of our own heart in the subjective moral will and therefore science cannot be uprooted except we first destroy morality 119 one of the lofty truisms the philosopher conquers passion by perceiving it the artist by bodying it forth in german it sounds still more lofty but does not for that reason approach any nearer to the truth der philosoph überwinde die leidenschaft in dem er sie begreift der künstler in dem er sie darstellt Windelband, Preludien, page one hundred ninety eight one hundred twenty the germans always try to get at allgemeingültigkeit well if the problem of knowledge is to fathom all the depths of actual life then experience in so far as it repeats itself is uninteresting or at least has a limit of interest it is necessary however to know what nobody yet knows and therefore we must walk not on the common road of allgemeingültigkeit but on new tracks which have never yet seen human feet thus morality which lays down definite rules and thereby guards life for a time from any surprise exists only by convention and in the end collapses before the non-moral surging up of individual human aspirations laws all of them have only a regulating value and are necessary only to those who want rest and security but the first and essential condition of life is lawlessness laws are a refreshing sleep lawlessness is creative activity 121 a equals a they say that logic does not need this postulate and could easily develop it by deduction i think not on the contrary in my opinion logic could not exist without this premise meanwhile it has a purely empirical origin in the realm of fact a is always more or less equal to a but it might be otherwise the universe might be so constituted as to admit of the most fantastic metamorphoses that which now equals a would successively equal b and then c and so on at present a stone remains long enough a stone a plant a plant an animal an animal but it might be that a stone changed into a plant before our eyes and the plant into an animal that there is nothing unthinkable in such a supposition is proved by the theory of evolution this theory only puts centuries in place of seconds so that in spite of the risk to which i expose myself from the admirers of the famous epicurean system i am compelled to repeat once more that anything you please may come from anything you please that a may not equal a and that consequently logic is dependent for its soundness on the empirically derived law of the unchangeableness of the external world admit the possibility of supernatural interference and logic will lose that certitude and inevitability of its conclusions which at present is so attractive to us 122 the effort to understand people life the universe prevents us from getting to know them at all since to know and to understand are two concepts which are not only non-identical but just the opposite of one another in meaning in spite of their being in constant use as synonyms 
we think we have understood a phenomenon if we have included it in a list of others previously known to us and since all our mental aspiration reduces itself to understanding the universe we refuse to know a great deal which will not adapt itself to the plain surface of the contemporary world conceptions for instance the leibniz question put by kant into the basis of the critique of reason how can we know a thing outside us if it does not enter into us it is non-understandable that is it does not agree with our notion of understanding hence it follows that it must be squeezed out of the field of view which is exactly what kant attempted to do to us it seems on the contrary that in the interests of knowing we should sacrifice and gladly understanding since understanding in any case is a secondary affair zu fragmentarisch ist welt und leben End of part one recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine.